Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Patient Empowerment Program is a podcast building a rare disease community and forum where the voices of patients, advocates, and experts can come together to focus on nano-rare diseases. The host is Dr. Stan Crook, a scientist, physician, and the father of antisense technology, and the founder of the Enlorm Foundation, which is focused on creating individualized treatments for patients with nano-rare diseases caused by a single gene mutation that affects less than 30 patients with the same mutation worldwide. A fan favorite episode is actually the very first episode with guest geneticist Dr. Wendy Chung and rare disease patient advocate, father, and actor Luke Rosen about the heartfelt story of his daughter, Susanna, a nano-rare Enlorm patient who is currently receiving a personalized medicine developed just for her. So I recommend starting there. Stream the Patient Empowerment Program wherever you're currently listening to this show. Just search Patient Empowerment Program and look for their purple and orange logo. You can also go directly to their website, nlorem.org. That's N-L-O-R-E-M.org. Hey, welcome back to the House of Pod. My name is Kaveh Hoda. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Today, we are going to be talking about something uh, I think that is really important, which is rare disease. And we got some really special guests to do that. I know I say special guests every time, but I actually mean it this time. For the first time, I mean it on this episode. Joining us first, we have John Baldwin-Gorley and Zoe Mandel from the band Portugal, period, The Man. Besides making awesome music with hits like Feel It Still and Live in the Moment, they're known for their activism, from raising awareness of the endangered Sumatran tigers to getting musical instruments into as many American schools as possible. Today, we're talking about something else that they've been working on, something that they've been working really hard on, put a lot of time, love, and energy into. And that's talking about their daughter, Frances, who was born in 2011 
and is afflicted with a rare neurodegenerative disease called DHDDS, dihydrolyl diphosphate synthase. Something I totally knew about before this episode. Um, I'm just kidding. I had no idea, and I had to learn about it for this episode, and it's been really interesting to read about it. Uh, the, the brief description of it is that DHDDS is a neurodevelopmental disorder uh, for which there's only about 70 documented cases, and it's characterized by this spectrum of issues like learning difficulties, tremor, intractable seizures, developmental delay, or regression. I think we'll probably hear a little bit more about that from you guys. Thank you guys for coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks yeah, for having thanks. us. Thank you. Joining us also, because this is a bigger topic than I could ever handle on my own, is a doctor of well-deserved regard, Dr. Stan Crook, MD, PhD, who has founded a, a company called Enlorum that we're going to learn a lot more about to help his work with antisense oligonucleotides, or ASOs. And what is an ASO? Uh, well, of course, I know this. I knew this totally um, before this episode. Uh, ASOs are short, synthetic, single-stranded oligodeoxynucleotides uh, that can alter RNA. And they can either restore or modify protein expression. So if they can target the source of some pathogenesis, i.e. determining the gene that's at fault here, ASO-mediated therapies can have like a real chance of treating the downstream effects of a genetic mutation. And unfortunately, you know, many neurological conditions lack good treatments and these ASO based strategies, which I hope we'll hear a little bit more about seem to be very promising in terms of their treatment. You know, for example, SMA or spinal muscular atrophy and Duchenne's muscular atrophy now have some approved medications. Um, thanks to the work of people like, you know, Dr. Crook here and his colleagues, Obviously, I, I didn't know that before this episode, just in case that wasn't clear. In 2022, he won the Roy Vagalos Pro Bono Humanum Award for his many years of dedicated work developing synthetic oligonucleotides in order to control the expression of genes and proteins that are going to be really useful in the treatment of these super rare diseases. I think he's been a, a really important leader in the pharmaceutical industry, the first I know of to make a real commitment to open science. And more importantly, he's given parents and patients of people with rare diseases some real hope for the future. So, uh, Dr. Crook, welcome to the show as well. Well, I'm very happy to be here and looking forward to, to the conversation. Excellent. So, John, Zoe, let me, let me start with you here. Can you tell us a little bit about Francis and when you started to notice that something might be different? Um, yeah, Francis is a pretty outgoing, fun, uh, I don't know, ridiculous, comedic <laughs> child. Um, yeah, she's she's kind of a joy to be around most of the time. And she's very most of the time. That's a parent. Loving. I, I, uh, as a parent, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, um, yeah, she's she's very different to us. We're quite quiet. And yeah, she just kind of commands attention everywhere she goes, and she, yeah, she's fun. Um, but yeah, I she was diagnosed uh, in 2021 with DHDDS, and uh, that's the first time, obviously, I'd ever heard of that. Um, and she, we well, she first started to kind of 
struggle when she was around three years old with just speech delays and um, physical kind of things like hypotonia. And she did have a tremor that was picked up on and we took her in to be seen for that, but it wasn't cause for alarm at that time. Nobody seemed to think it was that big of a deal. So we kind of just put that to the side. Um, and then she, she kind of started to do better and better. She did learn, you know, she, she kind of developed her speech and she caught up somewhat with a lot of supports and therapies. And then um, she started to sort of have seizures when we were at home in 2021 uh, in the pandemic. And that was kind of, I don't know, quite a, a bit of a shock because it wasn't anything that we'd really seen before. Um, that was the first time, you know, the more extreme kind of symptoms came on. It's, it's as a parent, I can speak, I think, for every single parent that you know, nothing is worse in the world than seeing your kid not well and not being able to do anything about it or feeling that you can't help them. I, I will, I'm going to warn you guys, I'm, I like, am the guy who will cry every St. Jude's commercial. So there's a decent chance, it's about a 30% chance I'll choke up during this at some point and I apologize in advance, but it's, I know how hard that is. And it sounds like this process this whole process over the years must have been incredibly frustrating in terms of even getting a diagnosis. And also probably must be frustrating too that you know more about this than most doctors do. I would say almost all doctors. <laughs> At this point, you guys are probably experts in this. Yeah, I don't know about that. I do read everything, but I, I mean, I admit I really don't understand most of it. <laughs> I understand it on a very basic level and it's quite scary. Um, but yes, that is correct that I am usually the one go informing our neurologist of, of certain papers or certain things in regards to, you know, if she's got to try different medications. It's important that we know what other people have tried. Was there a, a sense of release, relief, I'm sorry, when there at least was a diagnosis when there was a name for what's happening? Um, I think it was pretty terrifying to be, to be perfectly honest and candid about it. Um, it because they didn't know what it was either. It, it took six months for us to get the, uh, we knew what it was. So we're, we're kind of reading about DHDDS, but it took like six months to even connect with anybody to have it really explained to us. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that period was, I think, mean, was intense. Yeah, it's pretty difficult to come away from that, those types of appointments, not feeling any better about it, obviously, probably feeling worse. But at the same time, I am glad that I know because it just makes an awful lot of sense now. Our journey, her journey, mm. just there's been a lot of things that now I, I, can understand and see where that was coming from. And so I think I would personally rather know. Was I, it, yeah. was it hard? Do you feel like there was a lot of medical professionals along the way that you had to try and convince that something was really wrong? We definitely went in for like, uh, 
just assessments a lot for like autism. Um, it, she would get different diagnoses. So she, it would be like ADHD. So try Ritalin with her and you try it and be like, whoa, this is not, yeah. it's not it, you know? Yeah. yeah we'd, we'd been going to child development centers since she was three years old and, and we did early intervention and speech and OT and all, all those things. Um, but yeah, I don't think there was any sort of um, suspicion that it was anything sort of deeper than ADD. The, the diagnosis she has is exceedingly rare. I mean, you guys are, it sounds like pretty much in contact with everyone else who has the diagnosis. Is that correct? I'm not sure about that. We are in contact with people who I think are getting this diagnosis in the last year or two. Mm. They're starting mm. to appear and join Facebook group and email. Um, but I, I believe there are a lot more out there with yeah. it. Um, and so the numbers are growing. It's just very slow. When I, when I first, you know, created the, our charity and our, and joined the Facebook group, there was only a handful of people in there. And and then that led to me meeting another mother with two kids with, with DHDDS. And now I think there's maybe 30 people in there. Um, originally there was maybe five. So it's it slowly grown in the yeah. last six months to a year. Dr. Crook, can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what makes a disease rare versus ultra or nano rare? How do you differentiate those things? I define nano rare as uh, mutations that are expressed in less than 30 patients worldwide that have a known prevalence of less than 30 patients. And the key word there is mutation. The vast majority of the patients who we're taking care of at NLORM don't have a named disease. And obviously, when you know what the genetic cause is, who cares, right? The, the, the names of diseases more or less get in the way. So, uh, and, and I picked 30 because I felt patients and parents needed a hard number. But there's nothing magic about 30. What's really important about that range is, at least at present, there's no commercial no possible commercial solution that could help these patients. Um, and, and, and this is the most uh, desperate, isolated, and, and, and catastrophic group of patients and parents that I've ever dealt with. And I've been involved for many, many years in lots of different diseases and issues. Um, and, um, you know, the, the experience that John and Zoe have is actually a little atypical. Um, I would say the vast majority of patients with nanorare mutations are never diagnosed. Uh, they, their disease progresses, they succumb to the disease. They have no idea why their lives are shorter, less robust than the lives they see around them. Our data now, um, based on you know the first 171 cases that we dealt with, show about an average of four and a half years between symptom onset and diagnosis. But the range is one month to 36 years. <laughs> and so these are highly idiosyncratic journeys that are influenced by many, many factors that have 
parents and patients have no control over at all. You know, are they located in New York or near a research center? Or do they have the resources to um, to to pay someone to sequence their child? So they're extremely rare. Um, um, and obviously, if you're an N of one, there is no community. Uh, and so they go through what John and Zoe did, which is try to understand what the problem is, go to through multiple diagnoses, multiple misreferrals, far too often multiple mistreatments. I mean, not just Ritalin, but disastrously terrible mistreatments yeah. um, before they're diagnosed. Um, and really, we only know about these patients today because we're sequencing human beings. Uh, we're sequencing the genomes. My guess, uh, if you look at just the average number of mutations per nucleotide in the human genome, is that when all humans are sequenced at birth, which is something we need to have happen, uh, we'll have millions of these patients. But they're all members of these this very elite subgroup of, of mutations. Um, and, and I would add just one more thing, and that is that many of the diseases we think of as rare, well, it's very clear this way this is going to play, is that there will be a common mutation or two, and then a, a phalanx of ever rarer mutations mm -hmm. down to banana rare. Um, and so I've been arguing for some time that we need to define these patient populations better because they have different characteristics and they require different kinds of solution. Um, so uh, a nanorare is the rarest and, and the most desperate. And it seems like most really rare diseases are genetic. I've read at least 70 to 80%, which makes sense, right? Um, and these are rare diseases. You, you know, you uh, had a career that was, you were very successful. You were heading up R&D at the precursor to GlaxoSmithKline. You left it to start up Ionis and now Enlorum. Is, can you tell us a little bit about how you made that journey, which I think is a little bit different than most people would assume a, someone that was successful in the pharmaceutical industry would follow? Yeah, I've... Uh, I lived in both worlds. I had full academic appointments and worked in the industry, and I've never been willing to give up science or administration, and I still practice science every day. I can't imagine why you give up science for administration. But uh, I did have, in, in the early part of my career, created the first uh, broadly successful line of cancer program in the industry. People tend to forget, but when I started, there were no anti-cancer programs and Merck was giving its anti-cancer drugs away because <laughs> mm -hmm. of the you couldn't make money in them. And then uh, when I was 35, I became president of R&D at, uh, at what is now GSK. And what happened to me was pretty straightforward. Um, somewhere around 83, um, it became very clear to me that the industry was dying, that the only way we're going to be able to maintain an industry at all is by constantly raising prices. And each, we've all seen that. I mean, the, the scale of price increases, it's actually terrifying. Um, and um, where I differed from others was what I thought was the cause. And I thought that the cause was the extraordinary inefficiency of small molecule drug discovery. And so I felt that 
at some point I should do something about it. And, and I felt that the right technology to change everything, if, it, if I could make it work, would be RNA targeted drug discovery or antisense technology. And uh, I'd come to the conclusion, having been, you know, the boss in a, a large company, that there's no way I could make antisense happen in a large company. It's going to take 30 years. That's five CEOs, 10 heads of R&D, 15 mergers, and so on and so on. So I founded Ionis to do that. And and uh, so we had to go alone for the better part of two decades or more. Um, I am pleased to say that, that we made it happen. And I'm, and I'm proud of that. And today, I think there are 16 RNA-targeted drugs that have been approved for commercial use. There'll be two more, two more, and two more Ionis drugs here that get approved in the next few months. Um, and what's very exciting to me is that it's now taking its place in the mainstream of medicine. I think if you look at the products that are coming after those, they're for the very large categories of diseases like cardiovascular disease and. Uh, hypertension and just a, a wide range of diseases. So it is broadly enabling. It is much more rapid and efficient than traditional drug discovery and development. Um, and the thing that makes it special, and this is what I hoped it would be, is that since ASOs in, in the same chemical class differ only in terms of the sequence, the genetic code that we use to target the RNA, yeah. uh, they share properties. And so we can actually learn from one ASO and apply it to all the other ASOs that come past it. Um, it you know, the, the old adage in the industry, change the methyl, change the drug is tragically true. What that means is you never learn anything with a small molecule, every, every yeah. change is a good game. So it is a technology that lends itself then to scaling up to the millions, but it also lends itself rather remarkably to scaling down to the single patient. Well, that's, that's one of the things I find really interesting about this is that, you know, there are ethical questions about treating very rare diseases. You know, there's people who will say, why are we spending a lot of money on treating uh, you know, a, a very rare disease like this, where we could be spending it on on something else like diabetes that affects you know millions and millions of people. And there's there's good ethical questions to be raised. There's good ethical questions to be saying like, why does one rare disease get more attention than another? Why does cystic fibrosis get more attention than sickle cell, for example, when there's more sickle cell? And we could talk about that. I mean. There's a lot of good reasons, and, and some of those are deeply ingrained prejudices of our country, and, and some of them are more complicated than even that. But the thing I like about this is it makes a good argument for why it's important to treat rare diseases, because it can then be used, if we use that technology, if we're forced to leverage technology to fix this problem, we can then use it, hopefully, to fix more and more problems. It's, it's leading to that innovation, right? This is what seems really exciting to me about it. Me too. Uh, and I'd say it even more aggressively than you did. Um, as, as I looked at the problem, what happened was I had two parents dif of different families with two boys who, who both had mutations in a nine channel gene, SCN2A, which encodes the alpha subunit of NAV12. And they visited me at Ionis <clears throat> and I had to tell them 
that there's just no way Ionis could pursue this commercially. It was just too small an indication. Um, but it hit me there that in principle, the technology that we've created, I, I could probably create a drug for, the, for their boys and give it to them. <laughs> and, you know, that was such a bizarre idea um, that it, it I spent a while just, you know, examining my sanity and then looking at the numbers. <laughs> Uh, but it, it turned out it could be done. And so if you think about the nanorare patient, it's very, very clear that they're never going to compete for healthcare dollars in a meaningful way. Um, there is, I mean, how can one justify charging hundreds and hundreds of, I mean, to treat one of these diseases commercially have charged tens of millions of dollars a patient. And, and so uh, we had, I had to come up with a solution that was not commercial. But if you think about this in classic terms of return on investment, um, the nanorare patient consumes millions of dollars a year in, in just um, life care. Uh, most of these are severe and chronic and debilitating, so they require lifelong support. They rob families. They impoverish families. They rob them of, of any hope, and they even destroy their ability to dream, which Hopelessness and dreamlessness is a really bad state for human beings. Um, in, 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 and even diagnosis saves money. Um, aside from saving emotional state. Um, but I think where the real power is going to come from, and I hate to use this term in front of two parents, but each of these nanorare patients is a unique experiment of nature. Uh, in which a single major variable has been introduced, a single mutation. And, you know, that's the, uh, that's what you do in biological experiments. You want to introduce a variable and, 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 and assess the effect. And so we have this unbelievable opportunity to use what we do with these patients to learn about health and disease. And that's where I think the major return on investment will come. And so it's even greater than what you described. And I believe, just based on what we've learned already, that in the coming years, I think we'll change everything. I think we'll change the way we think about health and disease altogether. So um, the real return on investment here is going to be knowledge. And knowledge is power. And, and, and this knowledge is the highest leverage knowledge I could imagine. And we, we spend, what, how many billions of dollars a year in animal models? There's not a person who runs an animal model who really is satisfied with them. Yeah. We have the human model um, with a single variable and with in Lorem, we're actually now moving rapidly to treat them. We can't treat all of them, but we can treat a large number. And as, as we do that, and as we see benefit, we can actually watch the reverse ontogeny of the disease. What symptom re recovers first? If you think about what we're already learning, I, I'm like you, I suppose, and everybody else, uh, until a few years ago, I thought developmental delays, once you had them, were baked in, it was over. Yeah. That's not true. Mm. <laughs> I mean, there are multiple lines of evidence that there's way more plasticity in the brain than, than that. Of course, we treat not just neurological diseases, but, but kidney and liver and, and eye and, 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 and due course pulmonary. But just to know that developmental um, delays some of them are recoverable is an astonishing advance in knowledge that that should provide tremendous 
hope to all of you. John, Zoe, I know nobody wants to be the interesting patient. <laughs> nobody wants to be the parent of an interesting patient. Hearing this, though, hearing this, and you guys have been working on this really intimately, what what kind of hope do you have for the future? Is it is it focused only on Francis, or are you also finding comfort in that this process is maybe going to play into something bigger? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm learning a lot from other families, and there's community in that. I don't feel quite as alone. Um, we haven't really come across many people with Francis's mutation, um, but I still think there's there's a lot to learn from each other and you know there's ways to support each other through something that's pretty unimaginable to a lot of people um and, and my hope is that you know things advance in the next five to ten years i don't know i don't really know how much time we have with francis and that's pretty crushing yeah um what you guys are dealing with is it's so 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 tough and i wish i had the right words and i i never will and i don't know if anyone could yeah sorry it, it's pretty difficult to <laughs> no, it's I hard mean, to talk about but um i also I'm, count my blessings i mean she's also you know she she's pretty independent right now and um she's happy and comfortable and those are huge positives you're doing okay if you cry i'm gonna cry yeah no i'm i'm good i uh yeah i don't really go every single day talking about it so it's just you get in sort of autopilot mode i think we we're just you know we're working we're advocating we're doing all these things we you just yeah. keep going and going and then uh, yeah, I guess when you have to stop and talk about it, then it hits you again. Yeah, I, I'm not going to do a Barbara Walters here and, <laughs> and try and get people to cry. That's yeah. a reference before your time, guys. I don't know if John and Zoe would even get that. <laughs> for, for Dr. Crook and myself. That's uh, well, uh, if you don't know history, you live in cross section. So you probably, they probably know history. <laughs> probably know who Barbara Walters was and. Gilda Radner doing Baba. That's right. John, do you do you find yourself tempering your hope? Do you find yourself trying to hold back a little bit on that? Uh, I'm extremely hopeful. I mean, I come back and I'd see her learning to read and doing all these things that I if we weren't sure if she'd be able to i mean i mean just watching her learn when she comes home from school and she has something new in her little bag i think i think that's that fills me with a lot of hope she's yeah. a strong kid man <laughs> she's i'm just looking at these photos on my desk of her like playing piano and singing and you know we used to hike a lot i've I want to see her do more of that stuff. It gets me excited every time I come home from from tour or shows, and she wants to run around the yard. Yeah, because I I can tell it's it's difficult for her sometimes. Yeah. Just her body. 
So yeah, I think she's she's a strong kid. She can. I I like to hear that there's things happening and that things are moving. And where do we where do you feel on that, Doctor Crook? Where do you feel for this? Um, where are we on the process of finding something for Francis? Well, the plus, really, the only plus these patients have is they all have an understandable, identifiable single gene mutation that's driving the phenotype. And uh, once we understand that, the nature of the mutation and a better and have a sense of what the proximal molecular pathologic events are, we have the information we need to decide whether we can help potentially help that patient. So I think there's realistic hope. Um, um, it's by no means unbridled. It's very it's realistic. We can only promise best efforts. We can't promise to make a medicine. We can't promise to make every symptom better or any symptom. And I try to make that as clear as I possibly can for every patient that we deal with. The, the, the cruelest hoax would be to provide false hope. Um, so um, we are just beginning um, Francis's research program. The thing to recall is that every patient that we accept is a new research program. And we try to move from acceptance of that case to first treatment in 18 months or less, which um, people know that typical drug development is, you know, 17 years and $3 billion. But what they don't really understand is typically 20 or 30 years of work goes before that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's the combination of the technology and the special guidance that the FDA has issued toward our doing this. And the guidance is based on the properties of the technology that we created. And I work with the FDA extensively to develop that guidance. I certainly don't claim that they use my ideas, but, but you know, I made lots of suggestions. So we have the technology, we have the guidance to help some of these patients and to do it in a time frame that most of these patients have. Um, we've lost three patients um, before we died before we could get an ASO to them. Those are bad days uh, at Enlorm. Um, so every patient is a new R&D program. Every task is a new challenge. This is a new challenge for us. Uh, and, and, and this syndrome at the molecular level is really, really a complex syndrome. You know, it, it alters glycosylation of proteins, but you know, the potential impact of altered glycosylation of, of proteins is altered structure, which can mean that they don't function, they precipitate in cells, you get, you, you know, that shows up as amyloid when you stain. But the end product is, is if you watch lysosomal disease, but what's really the cause of it? Uh, I mean, what's really driving the death of the lysosome? It, we don't know. So all of those things have to happen, we have to move along, we have to make an ASO that will that selectively reduces the, the RNA with the mutation and not the wild type. You know, those are challenging tasks. So um, we promise best efforts and we accept patients only that we think we have a reasonable chance of helping. Um, and I think given the technology, if with an optimized ASO and prudent dosing, I think we can 
we can minimize any risk of adverse events, uh, which is also very important uh, because these patients are too sick for us to be dumping unnecessary adverse events on them, particularly by the time we get them, because they will have already been mistreated so many times. Yeah. Well, speaking of unnecessary dumping uh, of things, let's do some unnecessary dumping of commercials into our listeners' ears. We'll be right back. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Oh, and we're back. That was really good. Those were delightful ads, all of them. Um, you know, Dr. Crook, you talk about using RNA and focusing treatments on RNA. I find this to be really exciting. But we're in a weird time in the world right now. There's always been, maybe in my opinion, a healthy mistrust of the pharmaceutical industry, just in terms of how they manage patients. As doctors, oftentimes I'm accused of being a shill for big pharma because I say get vaccinated, but I have a pretty healthy mistrust of the pharmaceutical industry just from my experiences in medicine, practicing medicine. So that being said, when you're trying to use RNA treatment now, something revolving around RNA treatment that uses it and this new exciting technology, are you finding that since the time of COVID and people are now worried about quote unquote gene therapy and RNA and messenger RNA affecting their bodies forever, um, do you find it more difficult to do the work you want to do now because of that? No, I don't. Um, 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 you know, at Ionis, of course, we're treating large, we're treating populations. At Enlarm, now that I've moved on to Enlarm, I'm treating individuals. And the individuals who make it to us have had to find a research position, have filled out a very complex application, and are coming um, with hope and in the need of help. Um, and, um, um, you know, I described it at the uh, um, I, I've been in, 
in the end, I, I came to the industry because I wanted to help a patient I have with cancer. It's really simple. Young man with testicle cancer, uh, back when testicle cancer, disseminated testicle cancer with a six month dead sentence. I had to tell him as a resident that he was going to be dead in six months. Mm. He's my age. And I got interested in the drug that was an experimental drug called bleomycin. I went to the industry at a time when people like me didn't go in the industry because I wanted to make anti-cancer drugs and that's the place to make them. Um, so I believe deeply and most people in the industry are in the industry for the right reason. And, and I think when the industry behaves well, it remembers that the patient is the only reason for us to be. And when it loses its way, it forgets that. And in Lorem, of course, takes what is abstract. You know, you can lose that, that feeling, that emotion. I don't, I never have. But it's easy to get lost in the abstractions of science and business and, you know, trying to trying to pay the bills. Uh, here, um, I think of it as the most poetic expression of the heart of the industry. There is no commercial objective. <laughs> you know, I'm, I think I'm now about six or seven million dollars of our own money that we've invested in this. So, you know, I'm not making money. So it's... Um, it's the most tangible, poetic expression of the true heart of the industry, in my view. And, and that's another thing that I'm finding deeply rewarding about it, because it's allowing, if you, if you look at our supporters and our partners and so on, um, the industry to express its commitment to the patient in a way that it never have had before. So, no, I have not found um, my challenges actually finding the time and the resources to help the patients we have. I thought by now we'd have a handful of applications for patients. We've now processed, I think, 230 applications. We have 100 or so that programs that we've accepted. We can't fix and own mutations. Yeah. So there are some mutations we can't address, um, but many we can. And, you know, we filed nine INDs this last year. We'll file two more. Before the end of the year, we're treating a bunch of patients. We've actually, surprisingly to me, have you know strong evidence of benefit in multiple patients now. So I think we've demonstrated we can do it. We've demonstrated that we're doing it the right way. Uh, in, we are industrializing it so that there's quality at every step. Um, so uh, quite the contrary, I... I agree with you, these are strange times and concerning times in many ways. But this is a wonderfully simplifying poetic expression that makes everything easy. Well, Dr. Crick, I'm going to tell you, um, when Zoe first mentioned you, and I started looking into you a little bit and um, reading uh, about you and listening to some of your talks, I, at first I was pretty skeptical. Just because I'm like, this is, you know, I, I know a lot of biotech guys and I maintain, I think, a relatively healthy suspicion of them. But I was really won over. Um, you clearly uh, are passionate about this for all the right reasons. And, um, you know, it, it it's really beautiful to see somebody in your position doing what they're doing when I know there's so many other ways you could be using 
your background, your company, and power, both financial and otherwise, to, to make more for yourself. And what you're doing is making more for other people like John and Zoe here. So, you know, I, I do appreciate that. Well, it's a, just to respond, it's a privilege. You know, it wasn't what I wanted to do at this stage in my life or career, but I, if you think of yourself as a moral person, how can you not? Uh, but it's turned out to be a privilege. Like, like most of the rest of my life, it succeeded anything I knew to dream of. I wouldn't trade this experience for anything in the world. So, John, Zoe, uh, you guys have been through a lot. You guys have worked a ton on this. You guys have accumulated resources. And what advice do you have for other parents that might be earlier on in the rare disease game? What, what, should, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think first is probably when you get to a place where you can't even think about this, um, you know, I would find your community. Um, there are people setting up uh, patient advocacy groups uh, online. And the difficult thing is, you know, if you're really, really rare, it might not exist yet. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think I've created mine and I found another mum that also created it, hers as well in the UK, for the same disease. So we've pretty much banded together, uh, but we're in a position to sort of do that on the side. I don't know how, but <laughs> we're trying to figure it out and we're trying to get it going. Um, but I, I think just, just trying to find people that are in your boat. I mean, I, I had nobody for a couple of years and it was extremely isolating and lonely and just really depressing. And so I think once I started to find uh, one other person or a couple of other people, it, you know, I think it made it just a little bit easier to deal with, to have someone to talk to that can completely relate to what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And if you can't find your disease per se, like maybe you can find the symptoms. So like Francis has epilepsy, I can join epilepsy groups, right? Mm -hmm. If And if I don't have the time to start, you know, start a charity, which, you know, starting a 501c3 on top of what everybody's dealing with is, kind of ridiculous and I, I applaud like all the families that have that have really pushed to do that because it's a lot of work and a lot of time and again not everybody can can do that so um I think finding finding a group is really important or finding a group right um and I think that's just more beneficial than reading every paper and reading sort of horrific things every day that just mentally wears you down. Yeah. Um, and so that, that would be my main piece of advice, maybe along with also taking care of yourself. I mean, I've spoken to a couple of rare disease parents and generally that comes up, like you cannot forget who you are and be so consumed by it that you know you don't take care of yourself then you end up with health problems yourself and mm -hmm. you know and that's awful if you're if you're having to take care of somebody you know and a lot of people are around the clock you know it's it's important to find even small ways to take breaks or 
to to let like I said again like to let people come help you out every now and then I, I think that's a really important point. I think when people are going through this sort of stuff, like they're, they feel guilty about like taking any time for themselves or focusing on their own mental health, even for like a, a moment. There's this like, well, this energy should be spent towards this. And I, I don't have the time or the energy to do that. This is what I need to be focusing on. But honestly, that whole cliche about being in the airplane and the masks falling and putting it on yourself first so you can help others is really. I mean, there's truth to it. Like you will be more present for your loved ones in these situations if you're able to take care of yourself a little bit, you know, everyone has to do that. I think that's a really important point that you brought up. I'm happy you did. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so true. I, I definitely in two years made myself pretty unwell and it's just no good to anybody. And I think you have to try to balance things as much as you possibly can, which I know for some people it's just easier than others, but um, yeah, I I think it's really, really important. I think the small ways that people can help out and advance research is by being a part of natural history studies, um, patient registries, where it's just filling out a form right but in five years time if 30 to 100 people have all filled out this form and we're you know learning more and more about that particular disease then it's just going to be so much easier for researchers and and you know people developing treatments if they have a better understanding of the whole scope of the disease um so that would be one thing i would say like if you're feeling kind of like you don't know what to do or useless or helpless and like you don't know how to contribute like that is such a it's a small way to help out and you're actually benefiting the entire group when you do that john yeah i guess i mean really just stressing the importance of genetic testing I, we've 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 talked about this, uh, you know, publicly quite a bit at this point, and that's the thing that comes back to me the most is like, if they asked me in the hospital if I wanted to if we wanted to do genetic testing, and we said no because it's scary, you know, it's scary. Yeah. But I, I think it's 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 much scarier to end up in the situation where we're trying to chase whatever this is, you know. Yeah. I don't I don't know what it is. And trying out drugs and it's so much better to know. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, Dr. Crook, you mentioned that there's this delay. Um, I'm assuming a big part of that delay is someone eventually getting the genetic testing. It is. And we have many, many families who've actually had to pay to have the, the their their loved ones sequenced. And then, of course, they end up with this with the with the mutation, but they have no idea what it is, what it means, and that's then you have to do all that. So uh, there is um, the, obviously there are uh, bioethical issues that want, have to be considered. We don't want a repeat of eugenics, and we, we and, and and I do understand the danger of labels, I, but I think that's really getting the cart before the horse. 
uh, we must introduce genomic sequencing into newborns with proper controls. It's happening in the UK. It's going to happen in Singapore. It's happening in the UAE. Um, and and it's not simply uh, diagnosis, not at all. Uh, it's very, very clear from almost any disease you think of, but think about Spinrazar, ASO for SMA. You know, uh, it, we, we, the first 20 babies we treated was the scariest time in my career. They were all dying <laughs> um, because that's what we had to do. But we now know if we treat SMA patients before they become symptomatic, the vast majority of them are growing up like normal, healthy kids. My God, <laughs> yeah. nothing should stand away in the way of that opportunity. So we have to introduce that. And, and, and it's economically feasible. And if, if you were to couple that to then all the other omics that we have available to us, you could really begin to think about molecular epidemiologic studies. We need to go past, get past counting bodies. Okay, Framingham was great, but it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, we now have the tools to understand disease step by step uh, in, 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 a, in a cellular network fashion that could just extend our ability to help patients like this. So it, it's an essential reform. I'm pushing hard for it every day. And, you know, and MARM is a treatment option. And treatment is almost always the tip of the spear that drives these changes. And so certainly I'm spending a lot of my time um, pushing for, for that as a first step. Yeah. It's by no means sufficient because that just gives you mutation. It doesn't tell you what the mutation is. It doesn't then couple that to follow up and action and intervention. Um, and yes, I think there are a lot of people worried about labeling and th those sorts of things. Those are manageable. We can fix that, yeah. but we cannot fix a patient who's dead. We have to find ways to make it still work within those parameters and with, with addressing those ethical concerns. We can't let that be the reason people say, oh, we just came and touched this. Forget it. It's going to be too hot a topic. There's going to be too many people that are going to be upset by it. There's too much that could be used by this. There's too much use for this for us to, to not. And, and the solution is so simple. Uh, you could make follow. You could make follow up voluntary. Right. Okay. Um, and it, and if you have a mutation, you don't have a label. You have a mutation. It's not. Right. It's not autism. Right. It's not right. ADHD. It's a gene. Right. And, and so I think people need to come to their senses and get, get going on this. And that's a lot on us because we have to, as medical professionals, educate people on that. That's why I get nervous when people do 23andMe genetics sometimes because they'll see that they have this gene, but then you have to explain to them just because you have the gene, there is something called variable penetrance and there's other factors that go into this. It doesn't mean you're going to necessarily have the disease that's encoded for it. It doesn't necessarily mean your insurance rates have to go up or anything like that. So I think that is really important. And that would be very, very useful. Um, it's entirely ass backwards. <laughs> we, we have, oh, I like it when Dr. Crook uses foul I mean, language. Really, I really enjoy we have that. 23andMe selling, selling genetic sequencing when I have patients who are desperately in need of genetic sequencing. Right. It just is yeah. stupid and wrong. Right, right. There's there's the technology that we are not leveraging as well as we should. That is for sure. Um, okay, let me 
let me start moving into what we can do, what my listeners can do. Dr. Crook, um, first, let's talk about what physicians who might have an interest in these rare diseases or these sort of genetic issues, um, how can they get involved? How can they help support? What, what do you recommend for the young listeners? I have a lot of medical students out there listening. What, what can we recommend to them and tell them? Well, first, um, um, begin to think genetically. I mean, uh, you can't practice medicine today without thinking genetically, in my view. Um, second, if you have a patient who you think may be, a, a, you know, a rare variant or an extremely rare variant, you have to get that patient sequenced. And and then if you uh, and then if you find a mutation that is extremely rare, uh, go to our website and complete an application with the with the patient or parent. Uh, um, and if you have questions, just give us a call. Uh, we exist for one reason to treat these patients. There is no other reason for us to be. Um, and um, and in in. It really is essential that you refer your patient to a tertiary care center that is committed to helping these patients. I'm astonished at how many um, um, high quality institutions we've encountered who are unwilling to take the risk or do deal with whatever potential cost structure there is, which is modest to help these patients. So that's another key task. Uh, drive your institution to take this seriously as and then recognize the opportunity to learn. This is an, the most extraordinary research opportunity that I've encountered in my career. You know, I'm approaching now 600 publications or something like that. And, and I'm more excited about this. Good. <laughs> I, want, I want to maybe cut in there so John and Zoe know that's, that's pretty good. Like, I was pretty proud of myself for having like six. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the other is to think about the opportunity of, of, of these patients as a research opportunity for your institution. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to work with the NIH to change funding so that, so that this research opportunity doesn't just get lost. So, I mean, I, I could go on. I've got a list of about 5,000 things I want people to do. Mm -hmm. But, but if, if you have a patient... Think first of the patient, find a home for that patient, and then see if we can help. Yeah, that's great. So tell me a little bit, Zoe, you know, how Francis is doing now, how, where you're at with, with, with this situation right now, this situation that is, seems impossible, you know, how, how is she doing right now? Well, at the moment, she's doing pretty good uh, compared to two years ago. Um, she's able to go to school for a full day again, which is um, very recent. I mean, that's from September. Before that, she would only be able to go for two hours here and there, three hours max. She was kind of getting overwhelmed by everything. And obviously, with the medication changes as well, that was pretty difficult. Um, but right now, she's doing better. But we are seeing things starting to poke through that I hadn't seen in a couple of years. So 
her eyes kind of fluttering and rolling, her cutting out for a few seconds at a time, and uh, her staring off into space. Like it seems to have ramped up in the last month or two, and I, I have no idea why. So that's concerning to me, you know, in regards to a, a progressive disease every time I see something like that it's like a reminder and I'm very fortunate in that we go days where I don't see a whole lot of that stuff but at the moment there are some elements of that happening regularly and it kind of brings me back to earth a little in the oh no like this is it's still there and all we're doing is giving her meds for the seizures and that doesn't necessarily improve the other symptoms um, but overall I mean she's a pretty happy kid and it doesn't seem like she really recognizes that that's happening to her it's not constant it's not all the time but it is still happening mm. and so we are having to make medication adjustments now that we haven't really had to do in a while. And every time that happens, it just reminds me of the very beginning of this and having to try four different medications and her experiencing, you know, extreme anger and aggression and hallucinations and just her being mm. scared of everything, which is so out of character to her. And yeah. that was such a struggle trying to communicate that to a neurologist. It's yeah. really... I gotta say, it is really heartbreaking for me to hear it, and you have no reason to believe this, but I'm, you know, typically pretty good at comforting people, but it's like this is so hard for me uh, because kids, for me, it, it's it's my my soft spot, and it'll get me every single time. Um, it's why I didn't go into pediatrics. That yeah. that and the math involved, but mostly the first thing, and it's just like it's so hard for me. I, I mean, what? What can people say in these situations or should they not say anything or, or is that things that you just don't want to hear from people when, when you're going through something this tough? Um, I'm not sure really if there's anything people can say. It's really, it is awkward to talk about. I think it's so extreme and it's so painful that I think even relatives and friends, it, it, it's difficult to talk to them about because, you know, they're not witnessing these horrific things that you're going through and it's you know I mean it, obviously support is great um, but I don't I really I don't think there is much that anyone can say I think it's more about just listening and yeah. being supportive and maybe being like what do you need because um, that's another thing I've, I've learned and I've heard from other parents to other rare disease families it really is important to accept some help and some support when people offer it to you because my first <laughs> reaction to any of that is generally like no no i'm fine but right. it's really like one of the hardest things that i think anyone can go through because with your child or family member i mean you feel so helpless and so optionless and it's such a really scary place to be so yeah i mean I think friends and family just kind of being there and listening and and even just you know not having to talk about this every second of every day and going yeah. to do things that right. take your mind off of it and still you know living a life yeah playing music for with, example with some joys yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah 
that's good too yeah i mean yeah that's a good gig to have to help with this sort of thing i imagine but uh only so much it can do um you know one thing you mentioned that was interesting is in the very beginning you you talked about some of the small victories and that's something i i hear from like a lot of chronic disease patients is the ones that can really suck the marrow out of the small victories like in her example being able to go to school um, or do those things those are that's really important I'm, i'm are you making an effort to sort of focus on those things? Yeah, I think you absolutely have to, because I think we can't really live in a world where we're thinking about Francis moving out or Francis going to college, you know, Francis doing all these things that I think a lot of typical families sort of you know, they're anticipating doing that. Uh, that's just a given, right? That's the, the not college necessarily, but like whatever their child wants to do, right. they're thinking of, you know, a pretty typical uh, time frame or timeline, you know, for their children. And it's so different for us. We're not, we're not living in that world. We, ha- we can only live day to day. And there's a lot of unknowns and uncertainty and it's, yeah, all you can do is is sort of celebrate the the small wins, and they're a big deal to us. Yeah, John, Zoe, you guys are really inspiring to me. I know how much work you're you're doing, and I it can, like I said, I can only imagine how challenging that is. You have very busy careers, successful careers, and you're managing. Uh, a family and helping uh, Francis along the way and trying to organize as much as you can around uh, around this. How, how can people get involved and how can people help? What, what would you like people to do? We have set up a curedhddsusa.org website. It's an organization, a nonprofit that is basically... Uh, raising money to help not just Francis, but obviously everybody in the group. Um, So that's kind of a new thing that we've put together in the last few months. Um, And, you know, that's just, you're making an impact on people's lives. Like we we can do certain things ourselves. We're, We're lucky in that way, but there are a bunch of people in our group that don't know where to start. And so that support is really welcomed and, you know, and really, really appreciated. And it, and it does help the research along. It helps us figure out exactly what this disease is doing and perhaps, you know, how we can get to a point where we can treat it. And so, yeah, that organization is not just for Francis, that's for the, the group and that's our main goal. I, I don't know what the outcome will be for Francis, but you know, if if it's not so great, I, I still want to ad- help advance this for the people that are yet to be diagnosed. Yeah, you guys are awesome. I definitely will put links to all this sort of stuff and I look very much forward to having all you guys back on again in 18 to 24 months to see how things are going. 
and to see how Francis is doing. And, um, and I can't wait for that. Uh, I, I really appreciate all three of you guys coming on. Three rock stars on one show. Uh, and now I'm seeing that John is holding up a picture of her. And oh my gosh, she's so cute. You know, can I explain something to you? This is an actual psychological term. I'm holding up a picture of my, my daughter here as well. Um, There's an actual psychological term I looked into. It's called cute aggression. It's oh, when yeah. you, you think you're so cute, you want to eat it. Yeah. it. I thought it was just me being Persian. I didn't know it was an actual thing that exists. I get that. I see your face. I want to bite it. I sometimes, yeah. I sometimes and, and Francis has the same sort of thing. Yeah. Why you got to be a gastroenterologist now? Yeah. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about food. It's all about uh, food. It's an oral fixation. That's right. <laughs> okay, now we're getting to psychology. Um, all right. Well, thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, you guys are awesome. I'm going to put links to all these things here. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you all so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, he, he, offered, you. he offered you guys dinner. You get my presence. It's called cute aggression, I believe. Yeah, that's <laughs> passive aggression. My that's presence is the present. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.